Hi, and welcome to the Rooted In podcast hosted by Rooted In Language. We share expert guidance on teaching language arts and literacy based on the science of reading, best teaching practices, and our decades of experience. I am Rita Sabasco, and I am a speech and language pathologist. I teach students to read, write, and spell, particularly those who struggle. I'm going to share with you today uh, some information by Mark Seidenberg and Matt Cooper Borkenhagen. And they have taken the science of reading data that's out there, and they put together a collection of what they call the best teaching tenets. In other words, we have all this research in the fields of uh, child psychology, in developmental language skills, in cognition, in neuroscience, across all these various fields. And all of this information tells us a lot of what the brain is doing, but it doesn't always translate directly to what we need to be doing when we teach reading, writing, and spelling to our students. Clearly, we all need better training and better understanding of what the research says, but we have to figure out how do we translate what research says into effective teaching practices? And this is not always a direct line from research that happens way out there to what I'm doing at the table with a student. But we do have certain things that the convergence of evidence tells us that we can really incorporate into our teaching. And so these two researchers have put together what they feel confidence in saying, yes, this we know. So the first thing that science really does tell us is that children who learn reading and writing together and have a close alignment of their reading and writing skills, that they do better overall. And so the, we know that the brain organizes itself to become this reading brain. And we know that that organization is more robust when writing is included in the process. So another way to say this is, if you find a student who's a good writer, they're probably also a good reader. That there's this very close alignment with superior reading skills when you've obtained these higher level writing skills. So I think it's safe to say in our teaching practice that we definitely want to focus on this teaching, reading, and writing together. We want to make sure that writing is developing along with reading. And we've had many programs out there that have been good reading programs that have advanced students' reading skills, but we can now see that they weren't doing enough to advance students' writing skills. So the first thing we need to understand is that just because something is evidence-based doesn't mean it's, quote, true. This is the way science works. Science is not about absolutes. Science is about theories and collecting information and gathering data and creating a hypothesis, but constantly searching for more information. And new information and new studies may change the way we think as we go along. So science is never just a one and done. And this is really important to know 
We can't be too rigid in our thinking. But on the other hand, we can't constantly be blowing around with the wind. So we have to really look for information that is based on multiple studies that converge on a given conclusion. Just as I was talking about this notion of reading and writing and the importance of reading and writing both being robust with any learner, this is information that's a conclusion that we've come to based on a convergence of information and a convergence of studies out there. So we have to be critical and we have to try to verify what we're seeing out there, if it's true or is it a new whim? So this takes us to our second point that they make Teachers have to make use of scientific information, but we have to be cautious. So we have to try to find the people who are good sources and good communicators to help us gather this information. It's extremely time consuming. And I have to tell you that I cannot do it all. You don't want to rely on just what I managed to read. I have to follow people that I think are trustworthy, that I think are following the science. And that also guides me in what I'm reading. And we do have to recognize that Every single one of us has a bias and we're going to want to follow research that makes sense to us. And we're going to want to avoid reading about things that don't make sense to us. And, and this is a, a, an important thing to recognize. You know, I, I know I've talked about this many times, but when I first started hearing some evidence about students learning and saying letter names when they were spelling, at first, I felt like I didn't know if I could trust that information because I had been steeped so much in the research that talked about matching these sounds to letters. But that evidence keeps mounting and it's not an either or. It's that actually learners have to have a lot of information about letters sound information and letter name, and that they serve different purposes, but they all build into this really strong language system. I also like to read what's called, you know, meta studies or a meta analysis, where researchers on one given topic, they'll bring together a whole body of research. And so they're analyzing this huge body of research and then the kinds of conclusions that they can draw from that research is very, very helpful to me. But again, what's their criteria for picking that research? And what did they keep and what did they avoid? I just heard something interesting about what we see in different publishing journals, that if an idea like phonics is an old idea, we don't necessarily see it in the journals as much because it's not getting the same kind of play that a new idea gets. So when you have something like What Works Clearinghouse, when they are looking at you know, how many articles are published on a certain idea, that's not necessarily the criteria that we want for does this make 
this particular thing a good idea for teaching. It's very complicated, quite honestly. It's complicated. It's hard to sort through. It's no wonder everyone just wants to throw up their hands and say, so what the heck are we doing? But we do want to find sites we feel we can trust. The next point we need to know when we're teaching reading and writing is that there are a lot of theories and a lot of techniques out there, but the idea of the order of teaching, that's not super strong. Like I have to take my understanding and then mix it in with my experience. And so when I write a program like Pinwheels, the fact that I like to teach all the short vowels first, and then I slowly unpack practice of these short vowels as we add consonant letters. That's not necessarily the way another program does it. There's not research out there that says only do it this way, only do it that way. There is research though that suggests that we absolutely have to have this speech to text approach, this sound to letter approach. So I have more research behind the theory that I wanna teach one sound and then begin to teach the letters that represent that sound as opposed to an opposite approach, which may show a letter and teach all the sounds that one letter makes. That approach doesn't fit the research, which really shows us how much sound is what the brain organizes around. However, I also pair that with decades of experience. I've worked with plenty of students who have not really been able to break the reading code. They haven't become proficient readers and writers until I get them really focusing on what do they hear and then what are the letters they write with that. And if you listen to the podcast I did with Jean Ouellette, we talked about the importance of invented spelling in helping to promote this kind of learning that's needed. And all of that has research behind it. But which consonants I choose to teach first? We don't necessarily have research that says, oh, you must teach B before M. We don't have that kind of research. We have research around what sounds babies make first. You could follow that if you want, but that's speech production. We don't necessarily have these nuances of order of teaching. So we often have to ask ourselves, is this activity that I've dreamed up, is it consistent with what the research tells me? What was my goal? What am I working on? And what do I know about the way our brains need to work in order to achieve this task? What is this child struggling with? What if I try it this way? then can I get progress this way? That new idea actually needs to go through this huge level of research before I can say this one game, this one activity is absolutely going to achieve level X. We can't do that, but we can say, we know kids need to work on phonological processing skills. Here are some types of phonological processing games. We know that children need to understand how words are built. So we're going to make sure we build word study into our practice. We know that 
learning how to apply stress to multisyllable words is a critical skill for learning how to decode words that we have never seen before. We have to understand these patterns of stress that we get through practice and usage. That informs me that we need more multisyllable word practice. These are the kinds of ways that we draw on what the research has to tell us. Research also tells us that there are a lot of reasons why children might struggle with reading and writing. Sometimes it's due to phonological processing. Sometimes it's due to other issues. So we know that spoken language, that reading and writing are built on our listening, speaking language system. So if children have struggles in their spoken language, their spoken expression, they're probably going to struggle in their written expression. So we know reading is based and writing is based on language. Research tells us that, we know that. And so we always come at teaching reading and writing based on the underlying language system that children already have, their listening speaking system. This is why we do approach this in a speech to text way. Another important thing that science is informing us of as we teach is that explicit instruction is needed. We do need to get kids understanding how to become readers and writers. That is with explicit instruction and practice, consistent practice. However, scientists are also learning that a lot of what we know about reading and writing is implicitly learned. In other words, as we become better, as we venture into becoming readers and writers, the more we do it, the better we do it, right? There's this implicit learning that happens as I read. And this is in part based on what scientists like to call statistical learning. I'm being exposed to not just phonics patterns, I'm being exposed to what's called orthographic patterns, spelling patterns. And as I'm exposed to them, my brain is able to figure out that statistically, I'm likely to say this pattern in a certain way. Statistically, I'm likely to spell this sound in this certain way. We're ready to learn. We're ready to, to take on new learning based on experience. And another example of this is as we make kids aware of the morphological aspects of words, we increase their awareness of prefixes, base words, and suffixes that our brains are able to attend to this information and learn implicit information about it so that I may learn that certain suffixes are going to have a tendency to be unaccented syllables. And I'm used to that. And someone could present a word to me that ended in shun and I'm going to think, well, that's either a T-I-O-N or an S-I-O-N spelling. And I might even think I'm going to more likely guess T-I-O-N because that happens more frequently than the S-I-O-N. 
But if it has a little bit of a sound to it, then I might think, oh, that sounds a little more like it might be spelled S-I-O-N. And these are all the kinds of things that we can teach as patterns and we should increase student awareness as patterns, but we also need students doing a lot of reading and writing so that they can have this implicit learning going along. Now also, Research is suggesting that maybe struggling learners may have more difficulty with statistical learning. This may be an area of weakness for them. Their ability to kind of pick out and recognize patterns is maybe not as robust as a stronger learner. And so we may need to give them more help, more practice, more attempts at noticing these different patterns. So we also have to find a balance then between this explicit learning and this implicit learning. We don't want to bog kids down with a lot of rules. What we want is to give a pattern or rule and have kids notice it. We tend to have them put it in an LA binder. That way, that information is held somewhere. We can reference back to it. It's a reference tool, but kids aren't expected to have memorized all these rules. But meanwhile, if we've taught something new and we've gone to the trouble to write it down in our LA binder, we've noticed the pattern. Now we're gonna engage in a lot of practice with this pattern. And we will even have kids practice words that seem to break that pattern. In other words, the good way to become a good speller is to look at a word and say, well, this is what I expect the spelling to be, but it isn't that. So that thing that it isn't is what I need to remember. I was just doing this with a student yesterday. We were talking about the words where, where, and where. So the spelling, W-H-E-R-E, where, the question word, the spelling, W-A-R-E, like as in kitchenware, okay, or flatware, and then the W-E-A-R as in the clothes you wear. In her writing, she's gotten down this W-H-E-R-E, question word, where, what she struggles with is the form of wear like wearing clothes. And so we really needed to take, well, what do you know about that first sound in wear? What is it typically? The W. And WH tends to be the question word one because we know statistically question words tend to be spelled with WH. And so now statistically, you know, that when you hear a W sound, it's likely not a WH, it's more likely to be a W. And you hear this R at the end, that's pretty stable that it's gonna have an R letter. So what you need to know now is this EA spelling in the middle. This is the part that's unexpected, that's hard to remember, that we need to really pay attention to. And this kind of work with kids, this balance between explicit and implicit, and now let's use this word a lot in our writing. Let's talk about it. Let's reference back to it. I'm giving lots and lots and lots of practice so that this implicit learning through practice can become more solid as well. And maybe she'll begin to notice other words with E-A that make an A sound, and maybe even E-A-R as an orthographic pattern, where, pear, as in the fruit, pear. 
So this is the kind of balancing between explicit, implicit that needs to happen in our approach. Another important point that these researchers make is that we need to understand that the components of our literacy instruction, that's really for us to understand as teachers, not as much for kids to understand. What the young reader and writer needs to do is juggle a lot of components. So we as instructors need to understand what those components are, and we need to support not only learning skills, but learning the consolidation of skills of juggling these different components together. So there are times I will actually call out a certain activity. So we're doing word study today, but in my word study, guess what? We also are doing grammar and we're doing the morphology base of word study, base words, prefix, suffix. We're looking at vocabulary. What does this word mean? The grammar, as I already mentioned, how are we using it when we add different suffixes? How does it change the parts of speech when we use it? And then, of course, there's going to be that phonology piece, that phonics piece of matching the sounds we hear and say to the letters we see and write when we write those words or when we write those word parts. And so I know all these components are in there. This is like a little grammar going on here too. This was some phonics work going on here too, but I'm not necessarily expecting the student to think in terms of these separate entities. In fact, what I want them to learn is how to put it together. I want them to see the weaving, the interlapping skills. I want them to think three ways when they're spelling. What do they hear and say? What are the orthographic patterns they see and write? And how is the word built? I want them, including all that, I want them to be fast enough at that that they can access these higher level language skills of vocabulary, meaning, usage. All of that needs to be happening. And these are the things that science helps to teach us, that helps us teach kids. It doesn't necessarily tell us how many minutes of each one of those things I need to do, but it does inform me that if I only focus on one of those components, I'm not really doing good reading instruction. And of course, this is part of the debate that you hear people talk about now with phonics instruction. That phonics instruction, we think of it as the old time phonics instruction from years ago, which is not very consistent. And people who say we need to be teaching phonics are they throwing out all this other research that we know? No, not if they're doing a good job, they're not. They're saying phonics may be the door that helps open this conversation that begins this path to literacy, but we know that path of literacy has many, 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 many components to it. And in fact, if we go back to what I was telling you about this statistical learning, that old time phonics was all about the sound to letter correspondence, which is not super consistent in English and has a lot of quote, rule breakers or exceptions. But guess what? When we start adding in multi-syllable work, 
when we start adding in understanding of stress, when we start adding in word parts, this morphology. So we're adding in this phonics, this phonology with orthography, with morphology. When we even teach the different positional cues, when you hear this sound at an end of a word, it's likely to be spelled one way. But if you hear that sound in the middle of a word, it's likely to be spelled these other ways. When we add that kind of information, we're teaching a whole new kind of phonics. It's not your grandma's phonics anymore. It's this whole new level of teaching that's far more complex and quickly needs to be used in context. All of that, that's what the science is telling us. That's what we need to pay attention to. And that's what we need to learn how to do with our kids and how we measure any program that we come upon. We can take anybody's word lists, anybody's reading and use it the way we're teaching, the way it needs to be taught. And that's our goal here at Rooted in Language. This is Rita Sabasco from Rooted in Language. As always, we appreciate your listening. When you like our podcast, blogs, recordings, or reels, and when you share them with your friends, you help others find this critical information. So be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, and visit our website, rootedinlanguage.com. There you will find our classes, curricula, instructional materials, and plenty of free resources. Support our mission to help all learners become the best readers and writers they can be, including your own kids.